Okay, it's just been pointed out to me that it's not Tim Allen's hidey-ho neighbor. It's, what's his name, Wilson, right? My bad. (laughs) As you find your seats again, please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. And as you recall, or even as you skim over right now, Exodus 3 and 4 in your Bibles, last week we saw how God finally convinced Moses to return to Egypt to partner with God in setting the Israelites free. And so Moses, together with his brother Aaron, and certainly with the staff of God firmly in his hand, makes his way back to Egypt. First stop for he and Aaron was to convince the elders of Israel and the Israelites that God really did send them. And the people believed them, and Israel accept Moses and Aaron as their representatives to Pharaoh. And so we now find ourselves on the verge of easily one of the most famous stories in all the Bible, perhaps only the second most famous story in the book of Exodus after the crossing of the Red Sea, although the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai is pretty cool. But the story we are now poised to experience again together is the story of the Ten Plagues. Everybody say, ooh. But before... We dive headlong into the story of the ten plagues next week. I need this morning to help set us up for that story. There's an important piece, I think, that will help us better appreciate what is and what is not going on with the ten plagues. So let's set up the story of the ten plagues. One theological center of Exodus, and really of all the Bible, is the choice that God presents to all people, all time, everywhere, to choose whether or not to serve him. Indeed, if you've been here with us any of the past several weeks, then you know that I've been suggesting to you that one way to look at Exodus, at least, is Exodus is about making his case to Israel then, and God making his case to us again to choose to serve him. Whom will you serve? is the question I've been asking us, and I'll continue asking it right throughout this series. It is sometimes taught that the Old Testament is about the people of Israel being asked, whom will you serve? And the New Testament is about Gentiles being asked, whom will you serve? And while there is some merit in this distinction between the Testaments, it really isn't the complete story. And that's because in both Testaments, God gives the choice to all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile. In the New Testament, for example, it's often missed or brushed over that Paul is called to bring the choice of choosing Jesus not only to Gentiles, but also to Israel. And in the Old Testament, it is likewise often overlooked that God presents the choice of choosing him not only to Israel, but also to others. And we see this heart of our loving God for all people of all kinds in the story that we've begun studying the past several weeks. Yes, even in the Old Testament, even in the story of Exodus. And I say this on the eve of the story of the ten plagues because it is common, I think, to view the ten plagues as simply 
God hammering on those Egyptians until they finally let Israel go. It's common, it seems to me, to regard the plagues as God's judgment against the Egyptians. The problem with that is it's not what the Bible says. And oh, the plagues are certainly described as God's judgment all right, but not God's judgment against the Egyptians. Well, if not as judgment against the Egyptians, then against whom or what, Pastor? Any guesses? See, nobody reads the front of the bulletin, I'm convinced. I gave you a clue. It's in one of those verses. I hear it now. Take a look with me at Exodus 12, 12. God tells Moses and Aaron that he is bringing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Not against all the Egyptians, but against the gods of Egypt. And those are God's words near or at the end of the ten plagues. And take a look at the other plague story bookend, the one just before the first plague in chapter 7, where God tells Moses that the purpose of the coming plagues includes so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And that verb, know, is the same intimate, loving know that God uses when he says in other places in Exodus that he wants Israel to know him as their God. And so God not only wants Israel to know him, to choose to serve him, he also reveals his heart that the Egyptians would know him, would choose to serve him too. And that piece of God's great, big, loving heart for the lost, not only for Jews, but also for anyone and everyone, that piece of God's great, big, loving heart for the lost is often lost, I think, in Exodus, if not in the entire Old Testament especially. So when we read the story of the ten plagues next week, please keep in mind that God's judgment is against the gods of Egypt, not against the Egyptians. And keep in mind that the plagues are not only God making his case to Israel to choose and serve him, but also to the Egyptians to choose and serve him, both Israel and Egypt have the opportunity to choose to serve God. As you know, I've been keeping a list of ways that God makes his case in Exodus for people to serve him. And this one, it seems to me, deserves to be on our list. Whom will you serve? How about choosing to serve the God who loves those who don't even know him, who loves even those who are following other gods. How about choosing to serve the God who loves the lost? Just love that about our God. He doesn't only love those who love him back. He doesn't only love those who cry out to him, Oh, Father. But he also loves those who don't even know him yet. What an awesome God. Now, I wonder if some of you who already know the story of Exodus might be asking a few questions in response to that, in testing the statement I just made that God loves the lost, including the Egyptians, and so gives everyone the chance to choose to serve him. Maybe you have questions like the following. 
But Pastor Todd, I get lots of questions that begin with that. But Pastor Todd, what about Pharaoh? Doesn't the Bible tell us that God is the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart? And if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, well, then Pharaoh never stood a chance, did he? Never really had a fair chance to choose to serve God. Where is God's great, big, loving heart for Pharaoh? Pastor Todd. And these questions and questions like them are great questions. Now, before we attempt to answer the question of what about Pharaoh... Let's make sure we know what the Bible, in fact, says about Pharaoh's stubborn or hard heart, shall we? First, Exodus mentions Pharaoh's stubborn or hard heart precisely 20 times, all between chapters 4 and 14. And intriguingly, 10 of those times, it is said Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and 10 times... It says that the hardening is attributed to God. Isn't that fascinating? So exact, so precise. Almost begs that we consider it intentional to split it right down the middle by the author. Who's responsible for Pharaoh's hard heart? Pharaoh or God? So first of all, be be very careful if you're tempted to conclude only that the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's only half correct. It's incomplete because the Bible also says in equal measure that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And it's also interesting and I think informative that for the first five plagues, the Bible says it's Pharaoh hardening his own heart. It's not until the sixth plague that divine intervention, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, plays a role. And in addition, after the seventh plague, the Bible is very careful to stress twice the returning theme that Pharaoh's continued obstinacy is again self-willed. So what to make of all that? Does Pharaoh decide to remain stubborn? Does he decide to sin? Because after all, sin by definition is disobedience to God. Does Pharaoh decide to sin? Or does God decide for him, make him disobey? Which is it? And my answer is both. (laughs) And I know the hue and cry starts to well up in my mind too. My mind wants to protest. Wait just a minute. It can't be both. It makes sense, logically. It's got to be one or the other. Ultimately, either it's Pharaoh or God. How on earth can it be both? Well, God says here in Exodus that it's both. God and Pharaoh, the score is tied 10 to 10 on that one. So that's my answer because it's God's answer. It's both. Now, You theologians among us today are already just now realizing that we are stepping into the same theological quagmire between Calvin and Arminius, aren't we? Calvin, who emphasized God's sovereignty and election and predestination, saying that it's God who chooses those who choose him. And Arminius, who emphasized humanity's 
free will, that everyone has a fair and equal and free chance to choose God. And not unlike the split that we have in Exodus between God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart, both Calvinists and Arminians have their proof texts and pieces of Scripture they believe prove their position on this sadly often divisive issue. And so who's correct? Calvin or Arminius? And my answer is, can anyone guess? Both! God's answer is both. And therefore, so is mine. Now, if that's troubling to you, and believe me, I'll share with you, it's troubling to a big part of me. I am not comfortable when things like this don't make perfect sense to me. It bothers me when I don't completely understand something. But when I'm uncomfortable with fully understanding how something like both God and Pharaoh were responsible for Pharaoh's hardened heart, I'll share with you some places where I find comfort and peace over that. Maybe you will too. One place I go when I'm troubled when something like this doesn't make complete sense to me is Isaiah 55, where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then God gives this reassurance. My word will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And you, you will go out in joy joy and be led forth in peace. Or how about Ecclesiastes 8, where the author tells us, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. And if you want a New Testament passage for comfort, comfort when God makes you scratch your head, how about Romans 11, where Paul finally throws up his hands and trying to figure out just how precisely both ancient Israel and today's Gentiles are saved, Paul finally just goes, it's a paraphrase, and he sings a song. Did you ever notice that at the end of Romans 11? He's like, well, you know, the Jews didn't know, and then we knew, and they're supposed to be jealous, but don't you call the... He's like, just ties himself up in this intellectual knot, and finally he just goes... And he sings a song. I just love it. And guess what the song sings? Here's how it goes. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then he moves on to something else. (laughs) And after all that, if you're still troubled when you don't completely understand how something theological, it just seems impossible to you, if you still don't understand how it can possibly be nevertheless true, you can go where I go when I really need to hear it. 
And that's back in the Old Testament. Job chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41. Don't worry, I won't read them all. Job 38 through 41, where God really takes Job to task in four long chapters for thinking he's got God all figured out. And where Job finally says twice, once when God takes a breath in the middle, and then again when God is done speaking, Job wow! You are indeed great. I think I'll stop talking now. Oh, be careful, my friends, of limiting God in the box of human reason. Reason is not God. It's a valuable window into God. But it is not God. Be wary of falling prey to the same temptation of our brother, the Apostle Thomas, when he just couldn't believe the impossible without first seeing it, understanding it, comprehending it with his own eyes. So how on earth can it be both God and Pharaoh hardening Pharaoh's heart? How on earth? I don't know. It just can't be. But how in the kingdom of God? Ah, it cannot, it, it only can be, it is. Even if I can't figure it out to my complete satisfaction. God is God, not me. Now, without taking away from any of that, without undermining that the Bible presents both God and Pharaoh responsible for Pharaoh's hard heart, 10 to 10. Let me share a few thoughts as to why Exodus makes sure to tell us God hardened Pharaoh's heart, in my opinion. Remember that according to Exodus 12, God is bringing judgment against the gods of Egypt. Not the Egyptians, but the gods. Well, guess who set himself up as a god. Guess who decided that he had the godlike right and the authority to order mass genocide of newborn baby boys, the godlike right to take innocent lives. Guess who set himself up as the one who could bring order from chaos, that is, who is creator God? Take a wild guess who set himself up as a god. Pharaoh. Hmm. See, I suspect that Pharaoh is being judged by God not in his capacity as an Egyptian or even as a human being, but in his self-proclaimed capacity position, title-wise, as a God of Egypt. And so when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, God is passing judgment on Pharaoh's status in Egypt as a God. And if that's correct, as I think it is, then it's not really the point of Exodus for us to use God hardening Pharaoh's heart as a timeless theological principle relevant to all people at all times in all circumstances. I know Pharaoh is indeed a person, but the point of Exodus is to emphasize that God is superior to any Egyptian God. And this includes Pharaoh who set himself up as one. And that eases my concern a bit that God would 
entirely keep at least any person from freely choosing him. The exodus narrative isn't intended, in my opinion, for us to draw such a principle or conclusion from God's interaction with Pharaoh, one of the gods of Egypt. Now, it's interesting to note here that according to ancient Egyptian religion, when an Egyptian died, including Pharaoh, they would be judged by the gods. In Pharaoh's case, judged by his fellow gods. And here's where it begins to get fascinating because the judgment process would be to weigh the heart of the now dead Egyptian. You'd weigh the heart against a feather in what they called a balance of truth. And you'd weigh it in order to determine what kind of afterlife the deceased would receive. Got a picture of one of these balances of truth. That's that cross-like thing toward the left center. Do you see it? On the one end, on your left, is a little clay jar, and that contains the heart of the dead Egyptian. And on your right, on the other side of that scale, is the hieroglyphic for a feather. Now, if the heart ended up being heavier than the feather, then the deceased is in a world of hurt. Because if the heart was too heavy, the deceased would be judged a sinner and cast to the goddess Amenet, the devouress. Now, three guesses what Amenet, the devouress, would do to the deceased's heavy heart. You see Amenet. She is, you see those two dog-like creatures underneath the scale? The one on the left is Anubis, the god of the underworld. He's carefully doing the weighing. But the one on the right, who's crouched on haunches, kind of has the crocodile face with all the teeth. That's Amenet. And she's looking very carefully at all the hieroglyphics and as they're determining, measuring this pharaoh's work, in this case of this papyrus, as to whether or not his heart is heavier or lighter than a feather. And she's hoping against hope that that heart's heavy because then she gets a heart dinner. Seriously. She'll like go over there and devours the heart. I think I've got another picture that shows one of these two. These things are all over Egypt. Um, now you see Anubis is still underneath uh, the balance of truth. And then way to the right, you see half of Amonet. See her? It's got that same kind of long crocodile. And she's watching very carefully, wants to go eat that heart out of that jar if Pharaoh's heart is too heavy. And you'll find this depiction of judgment at death all over, ancient ruins and papyri in Egypt. So if it's heavy, they're in trouble. If the heart, however, is not heavier than a feather or lighter than a feather, then the deceased would receive the righteous reward of eternal life, according to Egyptian mythology. Now, Here's where it gets even more interesting, I think. In the 20 times that Pharaoh's hard heart is mentioned in Exodus, three different Hebrew words are used. In English, they all get translated the same way. Hard. Or sometimes stubborn. But here's the thing. One of those three Hebrew words is kaved. Go ahead, you can speak Hebrew in the assembly this morning. Say, kaved. And kaved, get this, literally means heavy. 
So, the Bible calls Pharaoh's heart in refusing to let Israel go heavy. Hmm. If we were living at the time the story of the Exodus was first told or the time it was first written and we understood Egyptian mythology surrounding judgment in the afterlife, then when we heard that Pharaoh's heart was heavy, we would understand that he was being judged and failing miserably. He was being judged a sinner, which is exactly what God says he is doing to the gods of Egypt. He is judging them, including Pharaoh. And what a powerful What a powerful picture for both Israel and the Egyptians, isn't it? The God of Israel even controlled the so-called Pharaoh God of Egypt. The God of Israel is the judge of the Egyptian gods. So maybe that's the reason, at least in part, the emphasis in Exodus ten times. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God heavied, judged to be heavy. Pharaoh's heart. To show that on a divine scale of things, not a human scale, but a divine scale of things, when truth is indeed balanced, God is superior to the gods of Egypt. And so I still believe we can say with confidence that the ten plagues are designed to reach not only the Israelites but also the Egyptians. We're still on solid ground to state with confidence that God loves the lost whoever they are. And one question I'll I'll leave us with today is this. Do we love the lost like God does? Do we love them? In the popular television series, Lost, when the people are first stranded on the island after their plane crashes, They soon discover they are not alone. There is another group of people on the island, and at first they are less than friendly. And the people who crashed on the island give them a name. They call them the Others. Yeah, someone even said it with the Others. And it's not, as I think I, I, you know, as I think you can tell, a complimentary term dripping with love. Others. It's a term that's full of mystery and fear and dread and, and distance. It's a term that draws a literal line in the sand of that island between us and them. They are the enemy, the those others. Now what's interesting as the series progresses, is that soon many of the us people actually join and become a huge part of the others. The others are suddenly given faces. And they're suddenly made human too. They also have a story. And that line between us and them, between us and others is crossed. They're not all enemies after all. They're just people with their hard stories too. Their difficulties too. See, God loves the lost. He not only loves us, 
who already know him. But he loves the others out there who don't yet know him. And it's through love that those others come to know him. Through God's love and given God's plan, others come to know God's love through God's love in and through us. So do we love the lost like God does? Do we use the power that God gives us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to draw others to us because of our love? Or do we sometimes use that power as a way to hammer them? God used his power in the form of plagues not to hammer the Egyptians. The Bible calls them miraculous signs and wonders. And he did those miraculous signs and wonders so they would see his power was greater than the gods of Egypt so that they too, even the Egyptians, might freely choose to serve him over Egypt's gods. Jesus' command to love even our enemies is not the first time God shows up with his love for the lost. That same principle is right here in Exodus as well. Do we love the lost like God does? See, if God makes his case for people to choose to serve him by loving the lost, shouldn't we too? Shouldn't we also make the case for people to choose to serve God by loving the lost? And how should we love the lost, do you suppose? Well, we can start, I think, by being a friend to someone who doesn't know God. That could be a real challenge, can't it? I know it's a challenge for me. When I thought about it this past week, I tried to write down a list what friends I have that I'm pretty certain at least don't know the Lord. And there weren't many on that list. And they were almost all lawyers that I used to work with. (laughs) There's a joke in there somewhere, I'm sure. Big surprise, right? Oh, there are plenty of Christian lawyers out there too, as you know. But ask yourself, ask yourself, right now, just honestly ask yourself this question. Do you have at least one friend that you help out, make time for, listen to, do loving things for, that you don't believe knows the Lord? Okay, don't look at them. How many of you, how many of you have a friend you know, a friend that you know is lost when it comes to God? See, I think it's easy for us in church to surround ourselves only with Christian friends. Well, that makes it a little tough to love the lost when we're not friends with anyone who's lost, doesn't it? Jesus tells us we're to be the salt of the earth. Salt really doesn't do much good if it just hangs out in the salt shaker all the time, does it? Now, to be sure, Christian community is great and necessary, and we need to be careful not to wade into tempting situations when we are tempted as well. The Bible cautions us to go in there in twos. The buddy system is biblical, did you know? 
But we're to go in there nonetheless and mix together with, get to know those who are lost. If you don't know a single person who is lost, and I mean know is and have some relationship there, well, maybe a good place to start with loving the lost, like God loves the lost, is to make a friend with someone who doesn't yet know God. And so for March, we're starting a program called Make a Pagan Your Pal. (laughs) An alternate title is Hug a Heathen. (laughs) You know, first service, there was kind of a long pause between me saying that and the laughter. I think they thought I was serious. They're a little tired yet at 9, not quite as tired as 8.15, but I'm kidding, of course. But you get the point? How can we love someone we don't take the time to get to know? One thing I like about the two services, honestly, is it creates more empty seats. Look around. Because each empty seat might have someone sitting in it someday. What a loving thing to do to ask someone to come and sit in that seat. And I'd like you to see, every time you come in, whether at 9 and 10.30, I'd like you to notice the empty seats. I'll do all I can too. We're doing all we can as a church, too. But you know, when it comes right down to it, this is your duty. This is your call. You're in a much better position in many ways. I'm wondering if each of you will commit, I mean, if half of you committed to find one person, if you have that one person who is lost, or just find someone you think might be struggling or hasn't gone to church or doesn't, hasn't, and say, hey, you want to come, uh, want to come next week and hear this story about the ten plagues? They, they, maybe they'll want to come and hear about the ten plagues. I'm... Yesterday, speaking of sitting in a seat, I sat at the scores table and kept the book for the regional finals of the girls' varsity basketball team. Our school, Front Range Christian, was up against an entire county some county high school. And I had the very lovely experience of having all of those county fans packed in the stands behind me. And boy, I heard some of the most colorful color commentary on a basketball game ever. And it was nonstop. And a couple of things hit me as their words were hitting me. One was, I sometimes yell at the refs and get too loud at sporting events too. (laughs) And I need to stop. I kept thinking, wow, do I sound like that too? And second, since it was yesterday, the sermon was very heavy on my heart. Although I need to be careful with that English expression now, don't I? (laughs) 
Where is Aminette going to eat my... Yeah. But I was sitting there thinking, okay, God loves these people too. And I don't know whether or not they're lost. Maybe some of them were. Maybe, But to me, they were others. So I was thinking, okay, God loves these people too, but do I love them right now? It's eh. kind of hoping a plague would come on them. But... <laughs> And it was, a real, it was a real challenge for me to find empathy for, for them, given the way they were acting. And, you know, our fans, I'm sure, that challenge too, beginning with me, and maybe they felt the same. But I'm sitting there feeling, I'm having a hard time loving these guys. And the third thing I thought was, you don't want to mess with some people from these outlying counties. <laughs> but then, after the game... I had a chance to talk with a few of their players. They were typical teen girls, and they're all giggly and laughing and pushing each other around in the hall by the locker rooms. I was standing there waiting for our team to come out because I I know the seniors especially were um, devastated. It was a really tough loss. Great, close game and just a tough loss, and it's their last thing, so I just wanted to say a few words of encouragement. So I'm hanging out in the hall, and... So I said to, to their players, hey, ladies, great game. It was a blessing to see you play so hard. You really earned this win. And it was really fun because they looked at me standing there in my purple front-range Christian shirt. And for just a second, is like, is he serious? Is he mocking us? Do we trust him? But like most kids do, children, kids, teens are great this way. They only paused a second and they said, hey, thanks. Tell your team they played really well, too. It could have gone either way. So I'm standing there. So I asked one of the seniors. I remember she was a senior from the program. I, hey, what are your plans after graduation? And you're a really good player. Are you going to go play in college somewhere? And oh, she went off chatty, chatty, chatty about her plans for college. And, and then she asked, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And then I got that wary look. That look that I hate as a pastor, but I understand it. That look that kind of goes, oh. (laughs) And then she starts noticing, where did my friends go? (laughs) And then she said, "I, I haven't been to church in a long time. And then I said, well, you know, you're a sinner in the hands of an angry God. <laughs> First service fell for that one, too. That's a joke, just for the record. Actually, I teased her a bit, and I asked, well, is there a church in your county? (laughs) And she flashed this relieved, brilliant smile, and yeah, um, I I should maybe go there again sometime. And I said, yeah, maybe you should. And we laughed a bit, and then we chatted a bit more before she said, hey, 
She said, great to meet you. I got to go find my mom. See you later. Started back to the gym. And so I stood there again, alone in the hall, and, and I smiled because I made a friend. Now, maybe she already knew the Lord. I have no idea, so I don't know whether she's lost. But to me, at least, she was an other, but now she isn't anymore. Because now i got a face and a name, and I know a little about her and she about me. And, and you know what? Suddenly, I could very easily find love for my new friend. You know, God was very patient with Egypt. He left His people there in bondage for 400 years. Now, the slavery portion might not have been that long. But they were there in Egypt for 400 years. I wonder why God left them there so long. Maybe hoping they would rub off on the Egyptians. God took His time with ten plagues. I mean, he could have just had one big nuclear bomb plague. Boom! Wipe them all out and Israel goes free. Been much more efficient. But he didn't. Why not? Instead, 400 years of his presence through Israel and then 10 drawn-out plagues. Some suggest maybe best guess over a period of nine months, although it's a wild guess. Bible doesn't say. But the point is, God gave Egypt a long, long time to get to know him through his people and then through his miraculous signs and wonders, what we call plagues. Maybe God's patience, consistent with Exodus 12, 12, is because he wanted the Egyptians to know him as Lord too. Are we as patient with the lost? Do we take that kind of time with people we consider others? Shouldn't we? Whom will you serve? How about serving God, who is big enough, loving enough, patient enough to love the lost? And when this God who loves the lost asks us to be like Jesus, to be like him, when you choose to serve him, God is asking us to love the lost too. Whom will you serve? If your answer is God, then are you ready to love the lost like he does? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this beautiful day. And Father, we know that you know how easy it is for us to become smug in our knowledge and relationship with you. And how even subconsciously unseen pride starts to grow. That we're in the family of God over those who are not yet in or who are out or who are others. Oh, Father, may we be captured by your amazing grace throughout the Bible and Scripture and throughout the experience of you in and through your church throughout millennia. 
May we capture your same love for the lost. Humble us if we need to be humbled, to be able to appreciate and empathize with and feel genuine care and compassion rather than simple irritation and dismissiveness when someone who is an other offends us. Lead us down that path of love so that maybe in some way, someday, through your grace and your love and your spirit, through us and in us, they may come to know you as God too. We love you. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand please for God's blessing for his benediction? This one again from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You're beginning to know it well. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O West Bowles Community Church. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself as God gives you strength and he will. And God's people in Jesus' name said... Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you again next week. God bless you all.